things that happen are very interesting, eh? You know how Anthony was here earlier? And I asked Anthony to leave me. Lantley walked across the road into the pub next door. And the spirit that was with Anthony, driving a lot of his desire to interrupt and so forth, instantly connected with the guy who was drunk in the pub. And the guy who was drunk in the pub came back, walked across the road and into our bedroom. And it was the same spirit with the both of them. And we just talked to the guy, and he actually said that he had a chat with Anthony in the pub. And, uh, and he felt that he was unfairly dealt with. <laughs> so obviously Anthony feels he was unfairly dealt with. But the spirit with Anthony was the one who jumped from one person to the next person, come back to try to, try to do basically the same thing, interrupt the proceedings. And these kind of things happen to us quite frequently, as you can imagine, where we have uh, spirits like controlling a lot of what happens in the room, controlling a lot of the questions, lots of things like that. And, uh, and that brings me to what uh, probably I'd like to talk about a little bit now, is what, I, what I'd call pseudo-spirituality. Um, do you mind if I talk about it for a bit? Because I feel it is a big issue for you guys here in England, actually, um, where there is the claim of spirituality without the substance. Now, can I clarify what I believe is the substance of spirituality? The primary substance of spirituality is love. What I mean by that is this. Anything that causes us to develop further in love, in the way in which we love our neighbour, our fellow man, ourselves, our children, and of course our relationship with God, our love of God, anything that causes that to develop and grow, I would actually call spirituality with substance. Anything that causes that to be ignored or stepped over or overlooked or, or skipped around, I would call pseudo-spirituality with no substance. Does that make sense? I feel the true substance of spirituality, true spirituality, and true development <coughs> of the soul has to involve love. And if it does not involve love, then it cannot be true spirituality. It's just a fake, a facade. The next thing I feel which is the substance of spirituality, true spirituality, is truth. The ability to speak it and live in it. What I see a lot happening around the world and uh, see a lot with New Age movements but also with other movements such as all forms of mainstream religion is that we have this idea of spirituality without there being much truth or love involved. There is a willingness to avoid issues of personal truth or universal truth in most forms of so-called spirituality. So instead of most forms of spirituality causing us to grow in truth, where we actually have the substance of understanding complete absolute truth, 
what I see happening over and over in the world is people investigate this one, that one, this one, that one, all these different forms of spirituality, and they just become more confused than they were before. To me, that is what is the result of pseudo-spirituality. Because true spirituality should result in you becoming less confused, not more confused. It should result in you knowing and understanding the universe more, not less. And I feel that a lot of the forms of spirituality, because they often are confusing to actually listen to, they are often quite illogical in their presentation, that we're forced by many forms of spirituality to try to accept illogical premises or illogical statements and illogical ideas. I feel you can almost look at any form of religion and pick out some of those cases where that particular thing seems illogical, out of harmony with just the intellect's ability to determine what is logical and what is not but also out of harmony with love and truth in many cases. So I feel that any form of spirituality that, that says, oh, all of us have truth, or oh, we, all can, we all can have different types of truth and it's all truth, or any of those kind of statements, they are all pseudo-spirituality, I feel. Because the true spirituality which draws us to God will result in us all having a very, very similar concept of God. So if we're actually being drawn to God by God, we'll all end up with a very, very similar concept of God. Not because we were taught it, not because we were brainwashed into it, but because it is our own experience that is very similar. Does that make sense? If God is a unique entity with unique characteristics and attributes, then it would make sense that eventually we're all going to discover the same attributes or similar attributes in God. Would that not make sense? It's a bit like, if all of you want to get to know me, sooner or later you'll all have a very similar opinion of me if you know me well. You'll all understand my nature and my character. Now you may have a different experience of me, but after a while, if you really get to know me closely and you really start to understand me and you spend a lot of time with me, and you, and you understand, you know, through through day-to-day -day interactions with me, and if I am being truthful and open and honest with you in all of my interactions, sooner or later all of you are going to get the same opinion of me, sooner or later. And it's exactly the same with all forms of development towards God. Sooner or later we'll arrive at the same conclusion about God and God's attributes and nature and quite characteristics the longer we spend time doing it. Any form of spirituality says differently, is really, to me, a pseudo-spirituality. This idea that there is no such thing as absolute truth, to me, is a pseudo-spiritual idea. Because it doesn't make sense for a start. God, the creator of the universe, must know all truth. And if God, the creator of the universe, knows all truth, then as I grow in truth, surely I should come to know more and more of God's truth, and so therefore come to know more and more of the absolute truth that exists in the universe. To me that is what makes sense, logically. The other part of uh, pseudo-spirituality that I'd like to talk to you about, and this I'm just giving you an introduction here, is this aspect of humility. Most forms of spirituality at some point promote a lack of equality, hierarchy, or arrogance 
and self-reliance. So let's look at hierarchy as an example. A lot of forms of spirituality on the planet promote hierarchy. You see it in Eastern religion, you see this idea that there's a guru that you have to connect to and he or she will share with you truth and you've got to be taught by that person and that person will lead you through a process like, almost like a mediator for your growth. Now to me, that doesn't make sense. Because if God created all of us equal, then all of us have the same capacity to connect to God directly. We do not need another individual. You do not need Jesus to connect to God. You, you only need these basic principles to connect to God. The basic things that God has created to connect to God. It's the same with, uh, with regard to, uh, if you ch choose a different religion like the Christian religion, for example. There is this belief that you need a certain belief to connect to God. Now, that doesn't make much sense either if you think about it, because there are many people in other religions who actually do have a connection to God, and yet they don't have that same belief. So that surely is proof that your belief system, your intellectual belief system, has little to do, particularly initially, with any connection with God. It has to do with something else, your passion for God. If you, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but there, in all forms of religious uh, and New Age investigation, you often come across a person who has a passion for God, for the entity God. And you can feel that passion in them, can't you? Like, you just feel it as a part of their vibrancy. And quite often, if you meet a person in a different religion, that you notice the same kind of vibrancy and passion for God, and they do seem to have very similar belief systems, even though they're of different religious <coughs> persuasions about God. They have similar belief systems. And the reason why is because the closer they get to God, of course they're going to end up with very similar belief systems about God. Now, if spirituality does not involve the development of love, does not involve a person becoming more truthful in their day-to-day -day life, and does not involve becoming more humble, in other words, learning to be completely open with the world around you and completely transparent with the world around you, then my feelings are that that is pseudo-spirituality. It's the spirituality you have when you're not having the spirituality, when you're having the spirituality. Do you have a Clayton's drink here? See, in, see in Australia we have a drink called Clayton's. It's, it's a drink that tastes like alcohol with no alcohol in it. <laughs> and, and I feel, to a large degree, that's what much spirituality is. A spirituality without real substance, without the real substance that will cause any change or growth. Not that I'm saying that alcohol will cause change or growth. <laughs> so, that being the case, what are the different qualities that will help us identify the difference between the substance that is real and the fake, the facade. What, what's, what's going to create the difference or, or show us the difference? There has to be some qualities, if you like, of spirituality, some of which we can see are going to cause trouble and others of which we can see are going to cause us to have no trouble or less trouble in our investigation of truth. And that's what I'd like to discuss with you for a bit. 
First one, I believe that true spirituality is simple. Not easy, simple. The two are different. You see, um, simple to me is simple to understand. A child, two years old, can teach the basic process of coming to have a connection with God and coming to understand truth. A child of two, I've found personally, can learn it so easily. <coughs> In fact, many times more easily than an adult. This simple process. It's simple to understand. Simple to even intellectually conceive. Not easy, because to actually sincerely become humble is not an easy process. And to sincerely... Uh, come to accept and understand truth inside of yourself and accept truth, that's not an easy process either. Because we have so much emotion tied up with it and so much complicated feelings that, that almost every time we're confronted with the truth we feel like resistance to it. We want to fight it. We want to war against it almost sometimes. And so it's not easy to follow, but it would certainly be simple to understand. So, if you find that instead of being simple, it's complex, and it requires a lot of intellectual thought and understanding, it's um, mystical. Mystical, yeah. It's mysterious. Then, to me, it's highly unlikely that it's actually spirituality or truth. But rather, it's highly likely that it's man-created imaginings of the mind to create a complex series of understanding in order to confound and confuse and actually cause you to have to spend years and years and years of your life investigating without any real result at <coughs> all. Now, if you look at many of the complex... Um, principles that are occurring on earth. And I'm not saying, by the way here, that God's laws don't have a degree of complexity. Because they do. There are very... But every one of them can be understood simply if you start looking at it from a position of love. If, if you see the thread of love through a concept, then it's highly likely it's truth. If you see no thread of love through a concept, then it's highly likely it needs to be modified before it is going to be truth. Yeah? And this is where I feel a lot of people go astray with their spiritual investigations. And it's also where I feel a lot of the New Age tech things have gone astray. In that it creates very complex things to attempt to understand quite simple principles. And in the end, we end up <coughs> confounded by words and confounded by ideas and theories and beliefs. So much so that we have no real any benefit in our personal day-to-day -day life from the experience of spirituality. Now, many of us love this. Do you understand? Many of us love the mysterious. We love the complex. We love the mystical. Why would, what would be one emotional reason why you would love the complex? Any ideas? It makes you feel intelligent. Exactly. It makes you feel like I'm an intelligent person. I can understand this very complex idea. 
Yes? So there's an emotional addiction to being perceived to be intelligent that would create complex understandings. Why would somebody like the mysterious? What's the emotion there? Why would somebody have an attraction towards the mysterious? Feeling different. Yes, feeling different, special, unique. I get the mysterious, isn't this, you know, and often people do speak in that, exactly those terms as well, don't they? We watched a very funny short video last night, which the guys downloaded from YouTube. It was, what was it? Ship New Age Girls Say. And then there's a Ship New Age Guys Say, and then there's a... Yogi one. Oh, Yogi one as well. Really funny. Because I've seen that person, who's deadly serious, come and talk to me thousands of times, the same kind of person, about their belief systems. And, and yet say it with a complete, like, in all seriousness, they're saying these very, what I would call, mysterious ideas, and totally believing them to be true in their head, and, and attempting to follow them in their lives without there being much substance. In other words, without there being any growth in love, without there being any growth in humility, without there being any growth in truth. Remember I'm saying the substance is love, truth, humility. Anything that has that thread through it, that's the thing that has true substance with regard to spiritual development. Okay. What's another sign if you of spiritual development. Can I ask a question? Sure, fire I find all that when you talk about spirits, let's say a spirit was an entity, went into the guy, that's kind of mysterious. And, and well, it's not to me. It's like I can see it happening. You see the spirit into the person, you see them well, you with see them. It, but well, I'm saying it can be very simple. We only make it mysterious through different emotions that stop us from seeing different things occurring. Does that make sense? See, if I have an emotional condition that stops me from seeing or feeling spirits, yeah. then I won't know that that's what was happening. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So now it's become more mysterious. Mm -hmm. Whereas divine truth always makes it less mysterious. It explains to us how everything works. It explains to us what's going on. When we, when we have spiritual <coughs> substance, it elucidates and enlightens everything. Okay. When we have spirituality with mystery, you can spend 10 years doing it and you're still mystified. Yes. Yeah? And in fact, uh, for many Christians, the teaching of the Trinity, which is a primary doctrine, according to the Nicene Creed, primary doctrine of Christianity, is still a mystery after 1,700 years of people analysing it. That's how much mystery we accept in our spiritual development. I'm saying that true spirituality never remains mysterious. It never remains without a logical or, or a solution or explanation. Yep. Which brings me to the next thing, which is true spirituality is logical. To me, God gave us an intellect, which half the time, sometimes less, 
seem to operate on a relatively logical basis. Now I say that because often it's our emotions that drive our intellect and, and often our intellect becomes quite illogical as a result. But when we use just logic without there being emotions involved that we wish to fight, then our logic has the ability to have clarity and therefore sort out many things. That's why God gave us a brain. One of the reasons why God gave us a mind. Now, to me, true spirituality with substance is logical. It has this thread of logic all the way through it. It may present more and more information in terms of the complexity of the universe, it undoubtedly is going to, but in the end the information will be quite simple once you analyse it from the perspective of truth, love and humility. And secondly, it will also be very logical in the way that it's understood. You'll be able to get it. The average person on the planet, without any degree, or associate diploma, or whatever other things you call them here, um, would still be able to logically perceive what the truth would be. And that makes sense, surely. If a God, of God was a God of love, he would create the truth in such a way that a child should be able to discover it, let alone an adult. So, what's the opposite to that? Obviously illogical. But we see illogical in so many threads of spirituality. I don't know if you noticed that. Like, often on a daily basis, different people email myself and Mary with all sorts of uh, concepts, spiritual concepts that they sincerely to believe to be true. But when you analyse them from a logical perspective, they just can't be true. It doesn't, they don't make any sense, logically. And, and so, my, when I write back to them, if I do get the chance, which is rare nowadays, um, I always talk about, firstly, this quality of logic being a part of true spirituality with substance. Now, if you look at every mainstream religion, there is always a degree of illogicalness in it. Some teachings are very logical, and some are extremely illogical. I can give you an example, for example, with Buddhism. <coughs> the teaching of reincarnation as it's currently perceived today has, and particularly the way certain religions perceive it, Buddhism and Hinduism in particular, display a large degree of illogicalness in their reasoning. For example, the reason why many priests in India sweep in front of themselves as they're walking along is because they're afraid to step on the soul of a previously existing human by stepping on an ant. Did you know that? What they do is they do not wish to harm or kill any creature at all. So what they do is they even will sweep in front of them to push away the ants so that they don't step on one. Because they believe stepping on one is snuffing out the current existence of a soul that has been previously incarnated as a human. Now, I look at that and I go, if I was God creating life on earth, why would I even create an ant if that's a problem? 
Because an ant is so easily to, easy to step on, is it not? Yeah. I'm sure the majority of us step on ants every single day of the week. Right? And if we're actually snuffing out the existence of a soul of a human, then that, to me, means that God created this system where to actually conform to God's laws, I've got to brush the street in front of me before I walk. But aren't you actually making the simple complex with this reasoning this logic? Oh, I think I'm making the, the complex simple. simple. And then you talk about it. Can I just... The nature of simplicity in the way that you're expressing it. Can I just stop you for a minute? Complex. Firstly, you didn't put your hand up. Oh, you don't wish to be interrupted. No, 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 it's okay. I'm perfectly happy to ask you if you put your hand up. Okay. To me, that's an issue of love of everyone in the audience besides myself. What, in the hand up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because you, you, wish to, you wish to be a part of the talk, that's fine. Put your hand up. Okay, so the question is, aren't I making things more complex? How am I making things more complex? Can you explain that to me? If you take a chess game. It is very simple to learn the rules of chess in three minutes. Yep. It takes many lifetimes to become good at it. And what you're saying is that everything is so simple except that we make it complex. We can't do anything else but make it complex. That is, that is our nature. That's not what I'm saying, though. See, talking about no, if you hit, if, if you actually heard what I said, I said a way of determining what is true spirituality is a, it will have a thread of simplicity. That's what I said. It'll have the thread of simplicity. I'm not. I also said that it doesn't mean there might not be complex things occurring in the universe that we'll eventually discover, but it will always have the thread of simplicity, the thread of love, truth, and humility will be the way to determine whether it's true or not in the end. That's what I said. Now, I don't know if that's how I come across. But... No, you didn't. Sorry? You didn't. I didn't say that. No, I don't, I don't, no, I'm not going to disagree with what you said. Okay. But you asked if, if that's how it came across. No, it didn't. Okay. Well, that's how I wanted to come across. Exactly as I just said it then. <laughs> I don't know about the rest of you. Did you feel it came across like that? Yes. Yeah, and I feel this is also where different emotions in different ones of us, because of our personal experience and because of what we hear and what's happened in our life, sometimes what gets said often gets misinterpreted, and I'm very happy to clarify what I'm actually saying. So what I'm actually saying is that there is a thread of simplicity through true spirituality. It doesn't mean that all of the concepts will be simple, it means that there's this thread of simple descriptions through it all. It's the same with love. There's this thread of love through it all. There'll be this thread of truth through it all. There'll be, well, the only way we'll understand it is by becoming more humble ourselves. That's the only way we'll understand it. There's this requirement, if you like, of our soul that we become more humble. That's the way things will work. So with regard to and what, what I was talking about in this particular regard was this concept of the idea that if you step on ants, you're actually killing previously incarnated souls right? and causing them to pass back to the spirit world. And 
that you need to brush them aside if you're going to be truly holy or, or truly practicing that particular faith, which is what many of the monks and priests of that particular faith do. They brush it aside. Now, I feel that if that was the case, God would have surprised you with a broom <laughs> as a part of your incarnation process to actually do that. Right? That's my feelings. Now, you can disagree with that. That's fine too. But to me, that, that isn't a logical teaching because the logic is you weren't supplied with a broom. You had to make one. And, and to actually assume that uh, stepping on those ants is actually killing previous souls it's not a valid assumption, particularly if you have no proof or evidence for that particular belief system. Right? Would you say that in essence, though, that Buddhist teaching is actually trying to teach that all life is precious? I agree with that. Okay. That's what, so I definitely agree with that. All life definitely is precious. And I definitely agree with that. <coughs> and in fact, if I believe that, I will attempt to practice that in my life, personally, by treating all life as precious, certainly. So I'm not saying that the underlying principle that it was attempting to achieve is not very simple and loving. I agree. But it then complicates it through this process where, and in the first century I used to say, uh, often ministers or priests strained out the gnat and gulped down the camel. In other words, they swallowed what was very obviously not true but the very small things they just allowed to go past. Like they, they took them and ran with them and actually became, they became primary belief systems. So this is a main problem that uh, we have today, I feel, is that we have this ability through logic to determine what is truthful, but unfortunately we accept in spiritual development a lot of very illogical understandings. Do, do you get my name? Yep. So, what else? Oh, sorry. All right. I just wanted to ask about um, divine love, um, receiving um, and being open to receiving it. Yeah. And in that open state, um, do you have to get rid of all barriers? You were saying about if we don't feel divine love, it's normally because we've got a barrier. Um, you don't have to get rid of all barriers. Can I put to you why this is that? So here's God. And this is another point of love, like that I feel is quite strong. Here's your soul. Remember I said that the love God has for you is permanent, 24 by 7. So you've got this love that God has for you, but it's not entering the soul because of different problems. One problem is the barrier of untruth. So truth needs to be in play. And yet another barrier is the actual humility of the soul. Right? Now, if we look at that as a basic principle, what do we notice? The separation. Separation. Separation? Why, why do you feel separation? Because of the, the barrier. But who put the barrier there? Well, myself, I guess. Right. Yeah. So question. is it really a barrier? Because you can remove it. 
Yeah, but the, the um, dichotomy I have is, um, you know, when you're talking about oversouling or spirits coming in um, and the need for protection, do you just remain humble or open and let it all pass through you, whatever it is that's um, being attracted to you? No, I'm saying that spirits would actually be attracted to you because of certain unhealed emotional addictions that you have that cause them to want to be attracted to you. So in other words, the only reason why I'd hold on to an addiction is because I'm not humble and I don't want to release the emotion that causes me to have the addiction. It's a bit like, it's a bit like if I have a physical addiction. So if I have a physical addiction to alcohol, for example, why do I have it? Most of the time, people who have an addiction to alcohol are addicted to alcohol because they have a huge amount of sadness in their life that they don't want to feel, and alcohol causes them to numb out and not have to feel the sadness. So the addiction is a result, the physical addiction is a result of some kind of spiritual choice that they've made to not feel their grief. Does that make sense? So I feel it's the same for everything that happens to us. We have this resistance to the truth, or we have a lack of humility. In other words, we don't want to feel everything that we actually feel, so we create alternatives. We, we try to create alternatives to feeling the terrible emotions that we have. The same applies to spirits. Spirits who are in that state are attracted to us if we're in that state. And so we eventually join with them, just like we join with people on Earth. Same principle. But if you look at it from God's perspective, that is still very, to me, simple and logical. In other words, if I avoid an emotion inside of myself that exposes me to other people around me who are also attempting to avoid the same emotion inside of themselves, or who have what I would call a sympathetic emotional attraction to that thing that I'm trying to avoid, and they will be drawn to me, and they will influence my life, whether they're physical and I can touch them and hold, hug them, or in the spirit world where I can't touch them and hug them necessarily. To me though, that is still very logical. Yeah. But that wasn't your original question. Your original question was? Yeah, I just am in confusion about whether to completely open up to um, humility and humbleness and, you know, the yearning for divine love. Yep. Um, whether that leaves me then in the process of um, being open to you know, everything that could happen to you. Receive it from uh, provoking people, yeah. you know, just being in a vulnerable state. Well, this is, isn't what isn't the question born out of a fear of yeah. vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Now, can you see that if you release that fear of vulnerability, then you wouldn't probably have even asked the question. But what if you're really open and something happens? Yeah. Then you feel it. <laughs> just, just go through the experience. You go through the experience and allow yourself to feel it. And work out what caused it. What, you know, by feeling it, you'll work out what caused it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's my feelings as to what actually does occur, and that's what's occurred all of my life. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Be the barrier. Is that going to also stop us from loving God? So of course. is our love going to hit that? Of course. And, yeah, so it's two ways. It's two ways. It's a two way barrier. Truth is a two way barrier. Because if, like, if I don't believe the truth about God, then how can I love God? Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Like, I'm not loving the real God, I'm loving someone I believe God to be. So, for example, if I believe God to be a punishing, or an autocratic punishing being, 
It's pretty hard to love an autocratic punishing being, isn't it? I don't know about you, but like those of you who've had an abusive father, I, I would guess that you find it pretty hard to love him. Right? And what we're saying is if, if God is a punishing God, and according to the Bible actually, the record of the Bible states that God actually killed at least 2.4 million people. That's what the Bible actually says God killed, that, God, that, that, that is numbers that God killed. But if you add the flood of Noah's day and the coming great destruction, which they call Armageddon, then there's a potential that God could kill a lot more in those two events, is there not? Now, if you believe that about God, then you obviously are quite afraid of God. Now, do you find love flows very well when you're afraid? Not generally. So that, again, is another belief we have inside of us that's out of harmony with truth that would cause our love for God to not flow to God. God is totally capable of feeling our love flowing to her as she is giving love to us. Yeah. And you did right, it's a two-way street. Yeah. And truth is a huge barrier to that occurring. There is a difference, though, in the love. Our love is our natural love, human love, going to God, whereas God's divine love actually has the effect, as it enters us, of transforming our soul into a different creature. It has the effect of removing many errors, but it also has the effect of uh, increasing the level of our emotional power, our ability to experience things. It increases that as well. So, so our love must transform God in some way, because love always does. But I doubt whether it's very much in comparison <laughs> to how God's love transforms us. Yeah. Does that help answer your question, eh? If your, your question is answered, yes? Yes? Yeah, I, I think it's just a case of being able to practice and you know, going with that opening. You'll find, for the majority of people, that there is a high level of fear about experiencing everything. In other words, there is usually a high level of fear about humility. And as I said to you, I've been quite blocked for the last year, and because of this, there's fears that prevent me from actually being in, in, you know, and accepting the truth. So it's the fears that prevent humility from being truly expressed. And many questions that I get asked in, you know, about this subject are often about our fears. We're often just expressing our fear. So what I would do, if I was yourself, is I'd go home and say, I've got a fear of, I'd write down, I've got a fear of vulnerability. Because when you no longer have a fear of vulnerability, you will actually be completely vulnerable, but you won't even think you're doing it. It's only, even using the word, I'm being vulnerable, indicates that I'm actually fearful of being vulnerable. Uh, because once you are just yourself, you will always be vulnerable. But I also feel that when you are in a state of humility and truth, you are at your least potential of being harmed, not your most. You see, there's a deep belief on the planet that if I am humble, other people will make fun of me, they'll make my life worse, They'll criticise me, they'll humiliate me, and so forth. But what I've found personally is the more humble I am, and the more truthful I am with everyone around me and myself, and the more humble I am to my own emotional experience, 
the less that happens, not more. Right? You would think that a guy who calls himself Jesus would be attacked quite regularly, right? But what's happened is initially I was attacked all the time, absolutely all the time. <coughs> Didn't matter where I went, everyone laughed at me. I would often have, like, in an audience this size, I'd have an, often have half of you by this stage, trust me, by the first five minutes, half of the audience I've been to places where half of the audience just get up, walk out the door, right? The rest of them were just angry, angry with me <laughs> the entire time I'm speaking. Very hard to speak when a whole group of people are angry with you. And, and that was my initial experience. And then I had to be humble. I had to actually allow myself to go through that process of being attacked and being ridiculed and being condescended to and all those other things, being told I was wrong, being told that I didn't know who I was, being told that I was an idiot, being told I was crazy, being told I needed to see a psychologist and so forth and so forth and so forth, right? And I, as I was humble to those experiences and I allowed myself to relate, when I say humble, I mean that I had emotions that I had to feel, grief I had to feel and fears that I had to feel that I actually felt. I didn't go, I'm humble to the experience and then have no emotion. Does that make sense? I actually had to feel every single attack. Now, the more of them I felt, the less it occurred. That's very interesting, isn't it? The more I felt it, the more humble I was to feeling these emotions, the less I was attacked. Whereas you would think the more humble you were, the more you'd be attacked. But it actually worked out completely the opposite. The less I'm attacked. Now, people around me get attacked very frequently about me being Jesus. And I don't hear about it at all. In other words, People who know me get attacked now because they have the same emotions that I used to have, but have now released. Does that make sense to you? And their law of attraction now brings them the attack that used to come to me. Right? Now, I still get questioned, of course, and, and but often I have very fascinating discussions as the questions continue now. Whereas before, it was just anger, rage, abuse, all those things, which happen very rarely now. Does that make sense? So my vulnerability, if you want to call it that, has actually allowed, firstly, me to grow, and I get have less and less response to what goes on emotionally. In other words, now if somebody attacks me, I don't cry about it for three, three days. Whereas right at the beginning, I used to. Like, I used to have an emotional response to that particular attack. Yeah? Now, if somebody does that, doesn't affect me at all. I don't even remember it shortly after it's occurred, most of the time, even. But those around me do. So obviously they have similar emotions now to go through, and if they go through the same thing, they will also become more protected and less involved in that behaviour that they're afraid of. So what I've found through my personal experience is this. The more humble I am, to just feeling what the experience is, and I mean actually feeling it. I don't mean, you know, hoodwinking yourself out of it or emotion or intellectually reasoning yourself away from the emotion. I mean actually feeling the raw emotion of what's created in an experience. The more I've done that, the less I get attacked in the same manner as I did. Now, to me, that tells me there's a huge power in what you call being vulnerable. 
that, that you will not recognize until you actually go through that experience. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do. Yeah. I just wanted to add to that that um, I found that the more humble I become, the less vulnerable I become to influence. Because in that, in those moments, I'm connected with myself. I'm more connected with what I'm receiving, and it might be painful, but I'm I'm less likely to do something to avoid that pain and therefore be manipulated. And it's the same thing with spirits. Um, I, the times when I've been most influenced by spirits is when I was the least humble because they're, they're hooking into my avoidance and my addictions and they're helping me to maintain that state. As soon as I become more humble, I'm more in tune with myself, I'm more in tune with what's coming from me, what's coming from them, and I can make decisions based on what I feel rather than what they're trying to influence me to do. Thank you. Thanks, Edith. Thanks, I just wondered if you could say something about the commonly notion of unconditional love in the New Age movement mm -hmm. and the second thing that came up for me was if you could say something about divine justice as a concept uh, as, as an opposite half to divine love so divine justice and unconditional love and, and the notion of uncon like God's love being unconditional And yeah, they're both very good questions. Um, should we start with the unconditional love question? What is your understanding, or what do you feel the New Age understanding is of unconditional love? I personally feel it's... I've sat with it quite a lot and asked a lot of people about, about it, and I've come to the conclusion that I just think that the, the concept is impossible. Because conditionality is inextricably linked in, in existence. And, and so um, it's a nice, a nice term, and I think it can make people feel good about themselves or you know, hide away from the raw truth of life. But I actually think it's uh, an erroneous concept. Potentially, I'm being humble about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm approaching it with an open mind, but to me, yeah. yeah um, I, I feel a lot of people would agree with it. And, and I know a lot of men that I've spoken to in particular agree with it. That they don't understand how there can be this idea or concept of unconditional love when there's conditions everywhere in the universe. So, for example, if we look at God's laws, there's, there is a law that involves uh, the, what I call the law of compensation, which is if you do something out of harmony with love, there's an automatic effect on your soul that causes you pain. Right? Now, a lot of people would see that as God being punishing Whereas I still see that as God being loving. Mm. But, but if you see it as God being punishing, then there's no such thing as unconditional love. Does that make sense? So it just depends on your definition, I suppose, is what I'm getting at. But let's look at uh, the issue of unconditional love. What I feel love, uh, God's love is, I do feel God's love is unconditional in this regard. God has as much love for you if you ignore God completely, or you want to connect to God, or you hate God, or any other concept that you could have of God applies, God still has the same amount of love ready to give to you in her. That's my understanding, based on my personal experience. Over 2,000 years, that's my understanding. 
Now, now to me that is unconditional in the, in the sense that it doesn't matter what you do, God still feels this feeling of love for you. So could I just come back with saying that so the term justice is almost a human interpretation of God's high love. It's yeah, almost, because we'll I'll talk about justice in a minute, because there is certainly divine justice um, as, a, as a concept that is a part of this love, and we'll talk about that. Um, but it, do you understand what I said as a first part, part of your answer? Oh, yeah, I really like it, yeah. Now, now, that does not mean that that love will enter you, because there is conditions under which that love can enter you, which are fully under your control, not God's. Do, do you follow? So what I'm saying is... If this is your soul, and this is God's soul, God's got this love all the time, independent of what you do for you. You can be a murderer, a, a, a rapist, a tax collector, as they used to be back in the first century, who often condemned as much as those first two. And, and God still has the same amount of love ready to give you. But... That love can only enter you under the condition that you allow it. And the way you allow it is by coming in harmony with truth and being humble and desiring it. There has to be also this desire for the love to enter you. Otherwise, it can't. So can you see, in that regard, the conditions all surround our own choice rather than God's. Can you see that? I can, and, but part of me feels like we are a much further out layer of God. I mean, I'm not saying that I am God, but we are in the same reality, right? So there is this barrier, which to me is a conditional layer. That, yeah, it is a conditional layer. And see, I don't see it as that, because I see that love has qualities. And, and part of the qualities of love are truth and humility. In fact, the more loving you become, the more humble you become. The more, the more loving you become, the more truthful you become. And because I see them as interwoven as a part of the, if you, could, if you could term it, the qualities of love, then I don't see it as a separateness. I just see it as a choice which, which revolves around one particular quality that God gave us, and that is this ability for us to have free will which is a tremendously important concept with regard to your own development. If you can exercise your will in any direction, God gave you the ability to exercise your will, even in a direction that's completely disharmonious with love. You, you can exercise your will in a terrible direction in terms of the results that it creates. And there are people historically on the earth who have literally murdered millions and millions of people because of the will they had to exercise their will in a direction out of harmony with love. Right? Now that is a choice that is made by that particular individual based on their desires, their being out of harmony with truth and them having no humility. When you bring yourself into more humility and truth and you have a desire to connect to God, then as this love transforms you, it also causes you to even see how to exercise your free will in a more loving manner. And, and it's that basic understanding that I feel is involved with love. If we can understand that love is very much about 
truth, humility and love, rather than just love as a separate quality that we're trying to define, in the sense that love cannot flow without there being truth and humility in the recipient. So if you love me and I don't, I don't let you, I don't allow you to, then I'm not going to feel your love no matter how much love you have for me. I might even think that you hate me even when you love me based on my own emotions and feelings. And this is the problem that we face with God. And a lot of the times I feel we are judging God based on our own condition rather than seeing God as someone who desires to love us and care for us all of our lives and give us all the love that we have the capacity to receive. And by the way, the capacity to receive God's love grows as our soul grows. So theoretically, we could have as almost in the end, if God's infinite in nature, which at this stage my understanding is that if God is infinite, if God's infinite in nature and infinite in love, then theoretically I can receive personally an infinite amount of God's love. And, and if that's what I'm capable of doing, then that tells me that God obviously has all of this unconditional love for me. The only condition is whether I choose through my will to receive it or not. That's the condition. So if you're saying, is there a condition on receiving God's love? Definitely. And the condition is, you must use your will to receive it. God will not give you anything, including love, against your will. Right? Does everyone understand that? It's very important to understand that. God will not give you anything against your will. You have to want it. Does that answer that question about unconditional love? I was with you right until that last sentence you mentioned, and now I feel like, but, you know... Um, God's got all the love ready to give. If our will isn't aligned with God, we still live and we still breathe, and, you know, so I could say, but actually God is still loving me because I... I'm in existence. I agree, but, but can I, can I be, just clarify something here? When I'm talking about divine love, I am talking about the substance of God's personal love for you, not God's general love for all of God's creation. And there's a very big difference between those two types of love. It's the same as you with regard to other things. You have a specific type of love for your partner that is unique in its nature, isn't it? It's not the same as you have for your best friend. Do you, do you see that? Sure. Different type of love. And what I'm suggesting to you is that God has a general love which all humanity, and not only humanity, but all of God's creatures and all of God's universe receives every single moment automatically. And I'm not talking about that as the divine love. The divine love is a personal love that God has to give you as long as you exercise your will to desire it, it will be received. And that's the different love. Do, do you understand? Yeah. That's what I'm getting at here. And in terms of that being unconditional, that is certainly unconditional with the exception that we have to use our will to receive it. Whereas the other type of love, which, which I said in the first century, God makes it rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, God has the amount of love for all of us that all of our basic necessities and needs are cared for if we use them appropriately and wisely, which many on the earth aren't doing at the moment. But 
If that is done, then everyone will get fed and everyone would get water and everyone would get shelter and so forth. God provided enough for all of that to occur. But that is a generalised love. What, what uh, We used to use the term in the first century, in Greek, agape, which is a love based on principle or equality. Right? What I'm talking about when I'm talking about God's love, divine love, is God's personal love for you as an individual. A relationship love, just like you have a relationship with a partner, but far more intense because it's coming from God. So that was the first part of your question. The second part of the question was about justice. Yeah? There is this principle of free will, which is a very, very basic principle, I feel. And that is this. If you exercise your will out of harmony with love, then there must be an automatic consequence. Because other people's free will is now being inhibited. So, for example, if I come along and bop you on the nose, I have exercised my will out of harmony with the love of you. Right? And I've affected your life. I've, I've forced you into a circumstance or condition that you did not choose to accept. Do you understand? I have forced you, through my will, to accept something from me, which was out of harmony with love, and it's actually harmed your life in some way. It might have given you a blood nose, it might have broken your nose, it might have put you in hospital for three weeks while they reconstruct your face. Right? And therefore, all out of harmony with love. Now, if I exercise my free will in that direction, God created a law which then automatically places the feelings of all of that on my soul, whether I acknowledge it or not. But I will at some point in my future existence have to acknowledge it. What you call divine justice, I call the law, the law of compensation. In other words, I am having to have to emotionally compensate at some point in the future, for every single and loving act that I perpetrated towards myself or another or the universe. And that's what you would call divine justice. Does that make sense? And I do sincerely believe in that. I've seen it in operation through my life in 2,000 years, every single moment of every single person's existence. And there's only one thing that actually overcomes this law. In other words, God has, if you listen to some of my YouTube presentations, you'll find that God has a hierarchy of laws. Some laws overcome the effects of other laws. Can I give you an illustration? We have physical law of gravity that binds us to the earth. Yes? But I can overcome that law by engaging another higher law. The law of aerodynamics. And when I engage the higher law, I can get in a vehicle that engages this law of aerodynamics that we call an airplane or a jet or whatever you want to call it. And now another law is coming into existence that has the effect of lifting me off of the ground and therefore looking like the law of gravity does not exist anymore for a period of time while I'm engaging the other law. 
The law of gravity is still present, but because of have got this other law, the knowledge of the other law, which we didn't have 150 years ago, as much as we do now, now that I've got this knowledge of this other law, the law of aerodynamics, I can do or, or do things that seem to imply that the law of gravity no longer applies. Of course, the law of gravity still does apply, but the law, the higher law, allows it to be as if it doesn't exist. And I'm suggesting to physically even, there's other laws man has yet to discover that will allow us all to levitate whenever we want to. Alright? And once we discover that law, then planes will go out the window and most of us will levitate ourselves instead. And once we engage that law. And what I'm also suggesting is that spiritual laws and moral laws, which are all to do with the soul, all have hierarchy as well. And divine justice is the law of compensation, but above that law are the laws of divine love, which are all about repentance and forgiveness. And rather than going into it now, because we're starting to talk about quite complex feelings that we need to, you know, at some point discover for ourselves, we can, you can actually, there, there's hundreds of hours of YouTube presentations on the internet that describe the hierarchy of laws, an introduction to the laws, and then describe some of the laws and how they actually have this hierarchical system. Divine justice is a part of the hierarchical laws. But justice is not about, from God's perspective, justice is not about punishment. You see, the concept we have on earth about punishment is this. That when something, somebody does something wrong, you've got to make them pay. But we very rarely conceive that we've got to help them change. Can you see the difference? Like one is an intention to make somebody pay for what they've done. Another one is an intention to help them change so they don't do the same thing anymore. In, in uh, uh, legal circles, they call that rehabilitation. God's laws all focus, including the law of compensation, focus on the rehabilitation of our soul. All of them. They do not focus on punishment for punishment's sake. There's a very big difference between those two states. Does that make sense too? So, so, every single law that God has created, right down to the very basic laws, all have love in them. The law of gravity <coughs> has love in it. It's a physical law, but it has love in it. Why does it have love in it? Because if we were spinning around as we are at, what is it, about 15, well, it's about 1800 kilometres an hour or whatever it is that the Earth is spinning around, and there was no gravity, where would you currently be? <laughs> We would have spun out into the universe and within a few moments, because there is no oxygen out there, we would have perished. So the law of gravity, a loving law, keeps us on the ground for the sake of our own personal safety. The law of aerodynamics is still a loving law, I feel, because it allows us more freedom while still honouring our desire to stay in the atmosphere. In other words, by st while still prolonging our life. So it's still a loving law. So I see every single law as having hierarchies, a hierarchy of laws, and every single law fitting in with God's divine plan. And, but I see divine justice as a lower law in comparison with the law of divine love.
And in brief answer, so in brief summary of your question, I do believe God has unconditional love for you, personal unconditional love for you, general unconditional love for you, and personal unconditional love for you. But the personal unconditional love for you can only flow while you choose it to do so. In other words, God's honor, God honours your free will choice. And God does have divine justice, which I call the law of compensation, but there are laws that are higher than that, that can be engaged, that can overcome the need for compensation. So that's the summary of that. Yeah, I've got a question about free will. Um, is, um, is there also, so is there divine will, um, God's will for yeah. us, and how can we find it out? How can we... And what was the point of him giving us free will? Anyway, we just need to find out what his will for us is. Exactly. <laughs> God has will for us and then gives us free will. Why did God then? Yeah, it's very confusing. It came up and I agree. There's a very simple answer. When you have a child, have you had a child? What's your purpose with this child? Do you want it to do everything you say? I want to give it Yeah, you, you want it to be able to learn to experience its own life, don't you? Wouldn't that bring you a lot of joy? Yeah, it would bring you a lot of joy as a mother, wouldn't it? To see your child grow, become self-sufficient, you know, in the sense of not reliant on anyone externally to herself or himself and to actually grow and engage his passions or her passions and desires and to actually follow their life with passion and to see them happy, fulfilled, content, that would be absolutely beautiful, wouldn't it be? That's exactly what God wants for you. The irony is that when you do that, you are doing what God wills, which is God designed you to become a free-thinking, sentient being that exercises its passion and desire and harmony with love at all times and does whatever it wishes in that, in that skeleton of love, in that, in that framework of love. That's how God designed you. So you could say in a way that God has a will for us, in the sense that God desires you to be the best person God designed you with the potential to be. That's God's will for you. But if you're asking the question, does God want me to go down the street, turn left, turn right, go up the hill, turn left, turn right, and then meet a certain person at a certain time? My answer to that is, do you want to do Because <laughs> if you want to do that, then God certainly wants you to do that. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I mean, I got into one point in life where I couldn't take any decisions at all, and I tried to do like methods of divination and tarot cards and trying to ask Very God... Dangerous. Yeah. And, and I just became so confused trying to find out what's God's will for me that I couldn't do anything at all. Exactly. And in fact, uh, what you do when you do things like that is you give your will over to whoever tells you what to do. You see, um, one of the things that I get accused of frequently is that I'm controlling people. I don't see how that's possible, given that I'm talking to you about free will and that you need to decide what you want to do. So I'm saying to you that one of the things you need to do is decide what you want. Decide what your passions are, what your desires are, and do it with passion and desire. 
being completely humble to the experience. And if you're humble to the experience, certain things will happen, certain sometimes bad things will happen, and you'll have to work your way through that emotionally. And then certain good things will happen, and, and definitely a lot of good things will happen eventually if you follow that process. If you put your hands in another person's, you'll put your life, sorry, in another person's hands, only their will is the thing that you were following. Now, God didn't give you free will so that you would then abdicate your free will and give it to another. Does that make sense? Even if that other is God. God gave you a gift of free will so that you could use it to the best ability that you have and to your own betterment. You can use it in any direction you wish, even. And God is happy every time. God says, now yesterday she, she did that really hurtful thing to that other person yesterday. She's at least using her will. I would love to see her use her will in a different direction because then she could become the best person she could be. But if that's the way she wants to use her will, I gave it to her. That's the way she's going to use it. What we need to do is decide how we're going to use it. Now, what I'm saying to you is if you use it in a direction that creates pain for yourself, so for others, it will also eventually create a lot of pain for yourself. If you use it in a direction that is loving and truthful with others and yourself, you are going to create a lot of very beautiful things in your life. Unimaginable things that the majority of you have never even experienced at this point. And when you pass in the spirit world, you'll be absolutely amazed at the things you can create through exercising your will in harmony with love. But you can also exercise your will in disharmony with love. And I've seen many, many, many dark people, dark spirits in the spirit world, right, who are so black with their unloving passions and desires that they have literally destroyed their own body through the process. And that is also the, your, your potential choice. You can, you can make choices that go in that direction too. God gave you that ability. The only thing you don't have to actually have the ability to do is to actually kill your soul. In other words, you are going to have to experience the results of every single choice you make. That is one of the laws. The law of self-responsibility. Now, if the choices you make are in harmony with love, then the results are going to be fantastic. You'll be completely happy. But if the, results, the, the choices you make are the results of you know, very dark emotions and you make some very choices that harm other people and yourself, then you're going to find, to get out of that state, there's going, you're going to need to go through quite a lot of pain. And many of the spirits that are with us today have not understood that. They've not actually understood that the reason why they're in a lot of pain is because they have made choices when they're on earth out of harmony with love. And it's not our definition of love either, by the way. See, often what we define as love is not God's definition. If you asked uh, 300 years ago the average Christian whether he should kill a Muslim, he would say yes. Now, most of them wouldn't answer that probably that way today. But 300 years ago, you imagine if you had that feeling in you and you actually went out and killed some Muslims thinking you were doing God's will. When you passed over, even though you thought you were doing God's will, 
That doesn't matter. What matters is whether you were or not. And remember, God's will is that we act in harmony with love. Right? That's our, his desire for us, her desire for us. So if we act out of harmony with love, there are going to be different things that happen to our soul as a result of that choice. We can make the choice, but we're going to have to experience the responsibility of it. That's free will. Free will always has associated responsibilities. Does that help you understand free will a little more? Now, I've given a talk about free will uh, for four hours, so there's a lot more about it that you can understand. It's on YouTube. If we go up the back. Yeah. Um, I have a question. I have a question. I think I have a question because I don't have that um, connection divine love, but um, my question is, what is God? I mean, Excellent question. It's the first question you should ask, isn't it? Who or what is God? <laughs> <laughs> Do you see that it is the most important question? And again, I have talked about this question, uh, I think on the internet, I've got a two-hour presentation on the internet about that. It was given in Melbourne, wasn't it? It was um, in Melbourne, Australia, um, sometime last year. May. May, was it last year? Um, and and a, a person in the audience asked exactly that question, and so I had a two-hour discussion about that being a very, very important question. And briefly, um, understanding who or what is God is a very, very important part of this particular discussion because what we're talking about is becoming at one with God. And we're talking about receiving God's love. So surely we need to discover who or what God is in that process. However, can I put to you that if you follow the process, which is longing for love, you know, desiring truth and humility, you will actually come to actually feel the answer to who or what God is as a part of that process. You see, every single truth that you can think of in the universe becomes open to you through this process. Right? So, just as a brief answer, rather than answering who or what God is, what I'm saying to you is that if you follow the process, you will actually be shown by God who God is. And you won't have to ask, uh, you know, AJ, who, who, who what's God? And, you won't have to ask, oh, I don't, I don't agree with AJ's explanation, let's go and ask, you know, Deepak Chopra, who, what God is. And you'll get all these different answers, which are all bombarding you. But if you actually connect to God, then God will answer to you who, what God is, and God will actually even display her qualities to you through this, through this emotional interaction that you can have with God. And so you get a complete satisfaction of the knowledge of God herself. You, you will feel God's qualities. The more and more you receive God's love, you will feel those qualities. And the beauty of that, if you think about it, is again, you're not then reliant on asking another person when you have the ability to go directly to God and get the answers that you need about that subject. The only problem with what I'm describing is this. It's going to take time whole lot of precious time. It's going to take patience and time to do it right now. 
<laughs> and uh, so what's going to happen is through this process, you're going to have to be patient with yourself in particular. And, and you, can, you can see this is a bit of a problem because in the world today, we are so used to receiving everything on tap. I get it as soon as I want it. You imagine making bread 200 years ago? Today it's like wander down the street, nearest corner store, chuck over a few pounds. Maybe is it how many how many pounds for a loaf of bread generally? One, one half, whatever. Get your loaf of bread, wander off home, cut her up, eat it. And in that process, we don't really appreciate what went into it, do we? You go back two hundred years ago. What would you have to have done? Well, you first have to plant the seeds, get them to grow, harvest them, thresh them, husk them, pound them, put all the ingredients together, mix it all up, cook it. Now, who's going to appreciate the bread more, do you think? Wait for it to rise. Wait for it to rise. I put to you that the person who did all of that work is going to appreciate the end result far more then the person just went down the shop and handed over a few bucks. Yep. Now, it's the same with our spiritual development. You see, if we get given everything on a platter, and this is a basic thing about God that we need to understand, if we get given everything on a platter without us having to have any personal effort involved or any personal development involved, then in the end we wouldn't appreciate what we just got because we don't. But when we've had to work through different emotional injuries, different aspects of truth, different belief systems, and we come to actually know the truth inside of ourselves because we've received it from God and received that love, now we appreciate our relationship with God. We appreciate how precious it is, how wonderful it is, and how powerful it is. We appreciate how it affects every area of our life. And that's the beauty of what God's created about this relationship, is that, is that if we have patience and, and we go through this process that God's designed for us to go through, we not only come to fully discover ourselves, we partially discover God, because to discover God fully takes even further development, you know, over thousands if not maybe millions of years before we know God even better. But we understand huge amounts of truth, God's truth, divine truth, in this process that's never ending. And we have so much joy in the process of discovery. And we also acknowledge that we've had the effort, we've had to make the personal effort, we've had to personally desire it. And that's very, very powerful. You will never forget it once you do that. Whereas, you know, it's a bit like a child. Christmas time just passed, yes? How did you find your children reacted to your presents that you gave? Isn't it a lot of the times they get a present? Or how did you even react to the presents that you got? <laughs> you get a present? I've got 25 hankies or handkerchiefs already. I don't need another one. So automatically we're in the place where we're unappreciated. And 
the beauty of us having to go through effort in our desire for God and our relationship with God is that we will eventually get to a place where we're completely appreciative of that relationship. We won't be like a person who's received a gift of Christmas only to discard it or even wipe their bottom with it the next day. And that's beautiful, I feel. Uh, you mentioned soulmates once. I have. Is it just like a, a spiritual bonus, not very important? Not very much. No, I feel it's very important. Very important. Um, in New Age circles, they're called twin flames. Yes. Yep. Um, but that, that's what I call soulmates. Soulmate, your soul is actually one complete unit, which is divided in two when it incarnates. It splits into two halves. And uh, it doesn't mean that the other half is a feminine or a Say the opposite gender is yourself, by the way. It has masculine and feminine qualities, and the degree of masculine qualities or feminine qualities that has determines who it incarnates into, in terms of the body. So if the dominant soul has mostly masculine qualities, then when it splits into two bodies, it will split into two males. If the dominant qualities of the total soul is feminine, it will split into two female bodies. If the dominance is a mixture of both, in other words, it has masculine and feminine qualities to a relatively equal degree, then it will split into two opposite genders. Actually, why is there that inconsistency of manifestation or incarnation in the gender polarity? How is it inconsistent? Well, sometimes it's a bit more and sometimes a bit less. Because the way God created our soul, this is that, now I'm now talking about the complete unit, not your half, is that it has a huge wide variety of personality and sexuality. So the reality of what God created is that right across the board, we are unique in almost every possible way you could imagine. Right? You're completely unique, including in the soul's expression of its own sexuality. Every single individual is completely unique. Individual soul, remember of which you are a half. You are half of an individual. And I'm talking about the entire soul. The entire soul is completely individual, unique, and God's created each single one of her children unique. And that's unique across every single quality. So some of you are going to have a great way of experiencing mathematics because God created you with this mathematical bent inside of your soul. Right? Others of you, while you will come to understand mathematics, won't be that attracted to it. Because the other things will you will find more attractive. Because God created you with that quality more dominant in your soul. And after a while, when you meet the different people, you start realising, wow, every single person is uniquely created by God. Every single soul of which you are half is uniquely created by God and unique in its nature. Now, the problem with that is that we have a wide range of possible sexuality of the soul in its complete unique state, but we only have two bodies to incarnate into, male or female. Can you see? And so, so what God has done is gone through this process where attraction occurs. So half of the soul gets attracted when to a body. 
whether that body is a, a physical and a spiritual body, actually. There's two bodies that each half of the soul gets attached to. A physical and a spiritual body. So if it's the feminine half of the soul and it's dominantly feminine, it will attract two bodies. When, when, when you have sex with partner, two bodies, when, once the genetic code meets, two bodies are created, not one. One's a physical body and the other one's a spiritual body. They both have very, very similar genetic qualities. Um, they, in fact, in the spirit world, you can actually dissect the genetic code of the spirit body. Just like on earth, you can dissect the genetic code of the physical body. Yeah? But that's not the soul. The soul is attracted to it, envelopes them, those bodies, and controls those bodies for a certain time of its existence. Yeah? Are we understanding that? Um, can I just ask, is everyone following that? Yeah. No. No? no. <laughs> more, more knowledge is needed? Yes? Yeah, and I'm just uh, I'm not sure what you're saying. I'm not entirely sure what you're saying here. Um, you're talking about soulmates and. Um, let me. Let me. Let me say um, more then. Yeah. So, when God created you, God actually created a soul of which you are one half. And when you incarnated, bodies were created for you by your parents. One half had two bodies created for it by one set of parents, and the soul was attached, that half of the soul was attached to those bodies, and the other half had two bodies created by usually a different set of parents. Nowadays? And the soul is attached to those bodies the half of the soul. That makes that soul and that soul half soulmates. They are physically, spiritually, emotionally and designed to be connected <coughs> for the rest of your existence. That's a bit confronting, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Very confronting. Almost everybody who is that who, who doesn't understand, you know, who initially doesn't, who's never had that, heard that, finds it very confronting for a lot of reasons. Hey, one reason is that you can't actually choose your soulmate because your soulmate is the other half of you. Like it's a, it's not even a choice. The soul has free will. This soul, the complete unit, has free will. Of which you are one half. Far away. So, so what if um, one of the soulmates doesn't desire to meet the other soulmate at all? Well, they, the other soul half. they can. When you desire truthfully to meet the other half of you, you will attract the other half of you into your life. And what about the earth changes? If the earth changes are coming and we live in different continents? And Makes a difference. The soul is very powerful, much more powerful than you currently realise. You can actually, like, give me an example with myself and Mary. Because I've had this feeling of soulmates for 2,000 years, of course, when I incarnate, I have a very, very strong feeling that my soulmate's gone, where is she? Right? And not only that, I have a huge amount of grief about her having gone. So, so once I realised that I've got all this grief about her having gone, I started processing that grief. I started working my way through how sad I was about missing my soulmate, Mary. 
Now that process for me started about mm, eight years ago now, around eight years ago. It took me four of those years of processing emotionally. I was celibate through all of that time. I didn't have any other relationships because any person I was told is my soulmate, I'd go and meet them. I go, definitely not the soulmate, because I can feel the other half of my soul. It's not that person. And sometimes I was told it's the other person on the side of the world. So I go to the other side of the world, check check her out. Definitely not my soulmate. <laughs> not because I don't want. I wanted it to be, or not wanted it to be. It was just because. I have a memory of Mary that I can feel. Now at this time, Mary was in other relationship. And Mary was overseas. She was living in Lebanon for a long for a period of time, living in Scotland for a while, and traveling around the world. And I was in Australia. I've never traveled at this point uh, around the world or anything like that. I started travelling during this period of time and started talking about the divine truth that I'm teaching you today and, and all of those kind of things. But I could feel that I still had emotions in me of grief in particular that were preventing my soulmate from being with me. So I had to keep working my way through this grief that I had about the loss of my soulmate. As I did that more and more, I eventually got to the point where I felt very strongly that I would be meeting her soon. Right. And as it turned out, Mary had finished a relationship overseas. She would got, uh, is it right to say, kicked out of Lebanon? Probably. Asked very politely. Asked politely to leave <laughs> Lebanon. And she <coughs> decided to come home to Australia. And guess where I was when she came home? I was sitting in her parents' living room talking about the divine truth when I met Mary. Now we were on opposite sides of the world and before then. But your soul is so powerful. And as soon as I met her, I knew she, Mary didn't have a clue, of course when she met me, and I didn't tell her, by the way, I never told her that she was my soulmate. But, and Mary had different emotions to experience, and I could feel Mary was sad, and, and so I thought I'd let her work her way through emotions. I never told her that she was my soulmate or anything like that, and other people did that, unfortunately, but, and, and we then have another discussion as to what happened. But, but what I'm illustrating to you is that it doesn't matter where your soulmate is, if you release all the things inside of you that prevent them from being with you, they will automatically be attracted into your life. Whether they have passed or not, they will be attracted into your life, actually. So can you explain why your grief was preventing me? I, don't... I had so much grief that um, to be with me, Mary would have had all of this projected grief upon her. Now Mary has an emotion inside of her where she's very, very sensitive to a male's grief and she finds it quite repulsive at times, right? As a result of that, if I had not released my grief, I would have continued to repulse Mary from my life. It required either Mary releasing her feelings about a male's grief or me deciding to release my grief 
that would cause the attraction. Does that make sense? Now, if one of us, Mary or myself, had chosen to release the thing we needed to release, the other would have been attracted. But if both of us decided to not be humble and release the emotion needed, then we would probably never even have met until we passed over the spirit world and then released our emotions eventually, and then we might have met. Now, I don't know about you, but I wasn't too happy about that idea, <laughs> waiting until we passed before we met. And by this stage in my life, I was definitely not content with having relationships just for the sake of relationships. And I was not content with having sexual relationships anymore without it being with my soulmate. And so that's why I was celibate for that time as well. Because I did decided I just did not wish to engage myself sexually with anyone else other than my soulmate. And it was those passions and desires that brought us together. And I think Mary freely admits that it definitely wasn't her passions and desires. Although there were some passions and desires that Mary also had, by the way, at the same time. So, so Mary, after a relationship broke up in Lebanon... Mary said to herself and felt for herself that she wanted to meet the person she could be with the rest of her life instead of having serial, monogamous relationships. Have a real relationship. That were real. She wanted a real relationship. So that's a part of the attraction that brings you together. So Mike, in answer to your question about soulmates, there is a physical <coughs> other half of you Somewhere, either in this earth, or maybe she's already passed or he's already passed. It depends which sexual attraction you have as to which gender it is. And that person is the other half of you, and you have no control over that as to who the other half of you is. Now, that in itself is quite a confronting concept, because it means that you don't even have the choice to select who your soulmate is. They are a person who is just physically the other half of you. It's, not, it's, like, it's like separating something and then saying, oh, that's a different person now. That doesn't happen. You're separate in terms of physically, but you are actually each the other half of yourself. We can go to... I'm told that my mother is my soulmate. Um, and that's quite hard to deal with. Is that true? No, it's not true. Thank you. <laughs> with New Age circles is there is a lot of spirit interference on the souls of people on earth that cause them to believe things that are physically and spiritually not possible. It's totally physically impossible for your mother to be your soulmate when you think about it. <laughs> because you were conceived by her and therefore your soul had to be in a unified state at the time you were conceived. So the other half of your soul has to be either a similar age to yourself or around the same age to yourself, not a generation apart. It's very rare to have soulmates that are a generation apart, in fact. The reason why is because the soul has a huge attraction to itself. So each half of the soul is, has this huge attraction to the other half of the soul. So what happens is, when the first half incarnates or is drawn into its bodies, through the law of attraction, the second half wants to incarnate from that moment onwards. 
Does that make sense? Because of the attraction of the two halves. So usually soulmates are within five to ten years of each other, and it's rare to see them twenty to thirty years apart. Very, very rare. Does that make sense? Not that rare, though. Can it still happen? Oh, of course it can happen, yes. But it is quite rare. Do you believe in the intercession of God in relation to souls coming together? Um, just, just, just through an act of prayer, like, please reveal yourself. No. The reason why I don't believe in that is because it circumvents the emotions that prevent the soul from coming together. You see, you see God's not cruel. God just doesn't keep souls apart. Uh, for no reason, and then you've got to ask God, and then all of a sudden God says, oh, yeah, no worries, you've asked now, so I'll put you together. <laughs> Does that make sense? God doesn't work like that. It has to happen through the operation of emotions that are going on between So, so the desire... Maybe. Desire, passion, within the two halves of the soul, yes. God has, in, in, has created that as law, and as a result of that, it's our desire and passion for the other half of our soul that will attract... Now, the desire and passion is also influenced by our fears. So, for example, if I'm, if I'm a female and I'm terrified of all males and my soulmate happens to be male, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think I'm going to meet my soulmate anytime soon? Probably not. I have to release the emotion of the terror of all males before I can actually physically attract that mate, the other half of myself into my life. So what God has done with all of God's laws is create this beautiful system that we have to engage true spirituality, not just fake spirituality but, or pseudo-spirituality. We have to actually truthfully engage the process before something happens. Now, if, if we feel we've met the soulmate just by going, oh, please tell me what someone is and somebody's telling them, then it's highly likely that it's the spirit who's engaged the coming together. Spirits have arranged it. Now, why would spirits do that? Because they get their addictions met through arranging things like that. A lot of times, sexual addictions met. So I have actually seen, and you can actually see it, there's people who have even described it to us that they've seen it, where they felt a spirit with them, that spirit with them told them that they, the other person was their soulmate, and sure enough, they felt hugely sexually attracted to the other person because that person had a spirit with them telling them about the attraction. And in one case we know of in, in Australia, one, the lady and man were actually influenced by spirits who had a relationship 50 years ago who were, who were separate from each other. And the only way they could consummate their sexual relationship now was by connecting to two people on earth who were open to the connection and actually have sex through the people. That was the only way they could maintain their relationship. Right? And so these two people, after a few months, realised that they were actually acting completely different from their normal personality and their normal way of thinking even changed. They even believed themselves to be those people 50 or 60 years ago. And once they realised all that, they started to talk to the spirits involved and they found out the complete details of their lives and what was actually going on. And the complete details of the life were that these two people came together. One was a, a Jewish um, woman 
who was actually placed in a concentration camp, and the other was a Italian. She was Jewish Italian. She was Jewish Italian. He was a German he guard. He was a German guard in that prison. And he often had sex with her, initially raped her, and then eventually they had a relationship. And these two people were still trying to act out this relationship in the spirit world through two other people. Right? Once, of course, they found all that out, where do you think the sexual desire went? <laughs> and once, they, once they, the spirits disconnected from the people, the people themselves didn't feel any attraction for each other. Isn't that interesting? I can tell you many stories like that. It's interesting, Mike just nodded off from that story. It's alright, Mike. Whenever we nod off when we've asked the question, there's a high likelihood you have spirits with you that are causing you to not listen to the answer. Well, I heard the bits. It's just a bit scary. Yeah. What happened was that you were starting to feel quite afraid of what I was describing inside of yourself, and that then chooses you, causes you to detune or, or separate yourself from staying present, and that then is easily influenced into just nodding off or whatever else after that. Could you just comment a bit more on, um, coming back to your emphasis on logic, the word species comes up for me in terms of when you're talking about the soul incarnation, and I'm, uh, it, it's just, um, it's not sitting well with me, this notion that the male and female properties can incarnate in different quantities. To me, there's an irregularity or a lack of order that, to me, you know, the saying, as above, so below, or so below, as, as above, you know, in the natural world, there seems there's a, a regulation, which I would have thought the species of the soul would, would echo. And I, to me, I just, yeah, I wonder if you could say a bit more. Maybe if you could talk a bit about the creation of the soul, the process behind that, and, yeah, how that comes, comes about. And I just, there's these variables that I, yeah, something's not sitting right with me. Firstly, can I say... That as you deal with different emotions and conditions within yourself and follow the process that I've previously described, a lot of these particular truths will come to you as truths. So you don't need to believe me right now about anything that I'm stating to you. Does that make sense? I'm not asking you to, in fact. What will happen is through your own experience, these truths will eventually become demonstrated to you through your own experience. However, that being said, with regard to this incarnation of the soul, I think the thing you're not quite understanding is the various qualities of the soul, of which there are literally thousands of different attributes and qualities of one soul. And if I can illustrate it in other things other than sexuality, you have uh, different qualities of each soul, each complete unit, has different qualities with regard to art, with regard to science, with regard to all of, that, all of your conceivable passions and desires, they are all different in quantity in their natural form. In other words, God created soul with personality. Every one of our personalities is unique, so therefore every single one of our likes, our passions and desires is unique in varying quantities. So you might have the same passion and desire as me, but it be in a different quantity. And that's a part, in terms of the natural the natural ability of the complete soul. That same variation applies to the sexual expression between the two soul halves. 
there's a huge variation there as well, just as there is in every other. <clears throat> and it's the huge variation that creates the different incarnated, the incarnated uh, properties are created by this huge variation. So, the degree of masculinity in every one soul is different to every other soul. The degree of femininity in every soul is different to every other soul. Just like the degree of artistic ability is different in one soul compared to another soul. Just like the degree of scientific ability is different in one soul compared to another soul. Because they are all very, very different from each other, when we incarnate, they are all expressed very differently as a result. Now, with regard to sexuality, or well, what I call, what you call sexuality, I don't really believe in. But I would call it soulality. <laughs> in other words, my soul has one type of attraction in its pure form, and that is only to my mate, whatever gender she is or he is. That's the only attraction it has in its pure form. It has no other attraction to any other person sexually. It only has an attraction to the other half of myself. In my pure form, not in my addiction form. In my addiction form, I may have attractions in all directions. In fact, many people feel they do have attractions in hundreds of directions. That's why they have promiscuity, is it not? So, so, but I'm saying in the pure form, once you've worked your way through things emotionally and released different emotions, eventually you get to the stage where you only have one attraction. And that one attraction is only for the other half of yourself. It doesn't matter to you who it is and what body it's in. You just have an attraction to that other half of yourself. Now, if that other half of yourself happens to be in a masculine body, because of the law of attraction and how it worked in terms of their incarnation, you will be attracted to a male. If that other half of yourself, because the, the other half of yourself is a male, if the other half of yourself happens to be attracted to a feminine body because of all the different things and the femininity in, the, in, in, in that part of the soul, your other half, then it'll be, you will be attracted to a female. You will be attracted to the other half of your soul, whether they're male or female. I, I kind of feel like, um, yeah, I, I, some other questions. I, I kind of felt like you didn't answer my question so specifically, but that's okay. I, I, a, a question that came up for me earlier and feels more relevant right now is how does the free will of your other aspect of your soul affect your unity? So, for instance, if you know my other half decided to, you know, make some very bad emotional decisions and was then potentially way late for 2,000 years. Where does that leave me in my journey? In it leaves you alive for 2,000 years. Right, okay. But to me, where's the just, where's the, the, the divine love in that? For me, well, if you are at one really with God, do you think you're going to... I try to be impeccable with my way. Yeah, but if you're at one with God, you don't care about being alone for 2,000 years. You just don't. I, I, I have friends that have been alone for 2,000 years. What about if it was 200,000 years? <laughs> well, that's actually not possible. That, there's no one in the universe that's been alone for that amount of time. Right, okay. There's been some alone for 2,000 years, 3,000 years. But to me, it's, there's this, this seems a really poignant injustice in having your journey so... So you feel you should be rewarded for your actions? <laughs> no, I just feel like there's, you know, if, if 
free will and true justice to me is that I am sovereign over my actions in totality. I don't have to be reliant on another aspect. No, it's a good, it's a good question. Can I answer it completely? When this half of the soul truly desires this half of the soul, it is very, very hard for this half of the soul to avoid the attraction. They have to be very detuned from any feelings before they can avoid the attraction. Now, usually what happens from a spirit perspective, and what I've seen happen in many of my friends' life in the spirit world, is that where this has occurred, this person has often visited this person and, and talked to them and done all sorts of things to try to assist them through the process of becoming open to their own half of the soul. And as they do that, they then recognise the other person as their mate. But that process may take a while if the person's damaged their soul a lot. And, and this is why I'm saying, for some it's taken a few thousand years. It doesn't mean they've never they've never actually spent time together. It just means that they can never be at one with each other. They can never be together permanently while this person is in a state of disharmony with love that, that doesn't allow them to become together. And this is a part of understanding the law of free will. Like, what you do has a huge effect, not only on you, but also on your soul mate. It does. And if we understood that more on this planet, it would be a lot faster before we meet soulmates. If we really understood that, most of us would have met our soulmates by the time we're ten. Ten years of age, I mean. On the earth. But the problem with the, with the life currently on the earth is it's not a true reflection of what's possible. Because we're in so much error on the earth, and we have so many belief systems that are out of, out of harmony with love and truth, we actually create situations which are the extremes of what could be created, rather than the norm. It is completely possible for every single person who ever incarnates on the earth to meet their soulmate before the age of 10. On the earth. Completely possible. But unfortunately, under our conditions today, not very likely, because of the amount of sexual addiction that most of us are in. So it's not likely. It's just possible. In the future, I believe it's going to be likely and always occurring. Like most people, by the time they become sexually developed, they will already met their soulmate. Please don't judge God through what we have created. And that's what you're having a tendency to do. See, what you're doing is you're saying, you're saying God wouldn't have allowed a system which allows us to create terrible what seems to be injustice. And I'm saying to you, God has allowed a system that allows you to create terrible injustice, even to yourself, and the other half of yourself. Now, we don't have to create that injustice. We could make different choices if we had different knowledge. One of the reasons why I want to talk to you today was so that you could have different knowledge, so you create different choices. Does that make sense? So, so we need to be very careful that we don't judge God for what we've created and then say it's unfair. We need to make sure that we take personal responsibility for what we've created, even if it was unknown at the time we created it. Yeah. Now, if people in the past had followed the principles that I taught 2,000 years ago, you right now would already be with your soulmate. 
but because people made different choices, they modified what I said and made all sorts of changes. Because of that, the truth about soulmates isn't really known on the earth, and as a result of that, the choices that you made have been different. Now, all we can do is make sure that we actually allow ourselves to change once we know the truth. And, and I can assure you that if you do that, you will find that God is far more merciful and kind and compassionate than what you currently believe God to be. I've got a child with um, Down syndrome. Yes. So I wondered on this aspect, you know, he, I couldn't sit here and understand what you were saying. So of course. his soul, how does that, how does this work? How does he learn? I mean, to me, actually, with his being, he's been very much in touch with God's love, you know. Of course. Because he's always pretty true to himself, really, apart from what maybe I and other things around him follow him. But exactly. he generally has seemed to the ability to stay more in touch with his truth than, than I do. So yep. I just wondered the things like that, how it works. Sure. Um, Rita, where were you? She, she, she was sitting there. Rita also has a child with Down syndrome. So, um, and has asked exactly the same question. And the reality is that Down syndrome is created by emotions of guilt inside of one or both parents. What gender is your child? A boy. A boy? So this has to be emotions of guilt or shame associated with the male affected by this father. Yeah. So, so it's both in both of you, not just in, yeah, no, no. Not just in one parent. Um, but there are combined emotions of guilt and shame associated. And guilt is the primary modification of the genetic code shortly after conception that results in a Down syndrome child. I've had loads of guilt. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and, uh, you know, guilt... Guilt is a very popular emotion, of course, uh, but we have to have it to a certain intensity before it begins to modify the genetic code. Does that make sense? So, so the guilt inside of yourself and your husband must be quite high for that to occur. Now, the key is to not blame yourself because your guilt came from your own childhood and your own experience, and the key is to work your way through it. The truth is that all genetic problems can be cured. That's my feeling, yeah. All genetic yeah. problems. But to do so, to cure it, we have to get into a state of appointment with God to actually cure a genetic problem. A yeah. person needs to be his, his father is not around, so I have no you know, influence on that part of the cause. Yes. Um, I live on my own, so... Yes. I just wondered, without his father being conscious of these things, how does that work for them? Well, what I'm saying is, if you, if you listen to what I was saying, I was saying that... Mm that actually the genetic code can be cured not by you processing emotion but by someone becoming at one with God eventually. So, so for example, if you became at one with God, you could cure your own child yeah, of, from, of their genetic deform, deformity in the genetic code. And the reality is also though that because of the guilt, spirits attached to your child while he was in the womb. Right? And they actually impeded the development of the genetics of the child mm -hmm. in such a way to deform it and, and affect the chromosomal construction. As a result of that, we, we call it Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, 
That all can be reversed. Firstly, we can help that child be removed from its spirit influence by addressing our own feelings of guilt and shame about our life, so we can release all of that. That actually releases the spirit influence on the child, because whatever the parent does has an effect on the spirit influence on the child. Once we've released that, and then if we continue to progress and become at one with God, we can now cure our child completely. Or if someone becomes at one with God before you, they can do that. Does it make sense? Yeah. Yep. Have you seen that done, AJ? Have you witnessed that in your life? In the first century, while I was on earth, yes. Yep. Yep. And there has not been anyone on earth who's been at one with God since. And so there's been no one who's been able to actually cure something like Down syndrome, which is a which is actually a genetic issue. soulmate for that reason. They're just totally detuned from this aspect of themselves. However... The other thing I just wanted to say just for a Can I answer what you've read? If you don't mind. And that is, is that when I used to go into schools, I used to be in the classroom and I used to look at the kids and I'd look over at a child. Maybe they might be about 13 or 14 years old. I'd look over at that, that young person and I would be like... I'm not actually sure whether that is a boy or a girl. I, I think it's a boy, but it kind of feels like a girl. And I kind of have this crazy idea, take it for what it is. I thought to myself, wow, they're more androgyne. Does that mean their masculine and feminine components are more um, evolved? And Can I ask they just that have question? that kind of energy. <laughs> <laughs> I I understand the question. Do you want me to answer it? Yeah. Okay. When you looked over the child, you actually saw two people. There was the person, the child, and their own soul and their own spirit body. But they were also controlled by a spirit. A spirit was overcloaking them. And what happens is the two have sort of like mixed with each other and this is, unfortunately, this is what happens frequently because our children are not protected by it because of our emotional condition. So what finishes up happening is that almost every single person has another person or more than one person with them constantly who you cannot see but you can feel. And as a result, you feel the blending or the amalgamation of both of their conditions, whatever their condition is. And so right at this moment, if I can... They seem like the most involved ones in the classroom. They seem like the ones like, wow, you know, they've got... No, they're the most overcloaked in the classroom, the most, and, and they have a spirit influencing their intellect, and so they seem 
intellectually developed, but unfortunately they're being controlled by another entity. I'd say more like spiritual emanation. No, they're exactly the same as you are right now. They are controlled by another entity. Right now, you are being controlled by another entity. Can you see it? Hello? Because <laughs> right now you are. And it's a, it's a standard or normal state for you. So you don't realise it as much as you're able to. There are a lot of people in this room, this is part of your law of attraction, there are a lot of people in this room who are controlled almost constantly by another entity. What's the percentage? <laughs> Around 45% of this room, people in this room are controlled by another entity for a fair portion of their life. <laughs> Emma, what do you feel? I don't actually feel like I am influenced. Not 100% of the time, though. So, but I, I couldn't tell the difference. You are not 100% of the time controlled by other entities, but you are highly influenced by them, and, and if you look at some of the emotions, you will see why. What's happened in the past in your life? Some pretty damaging actions, yes? What allowed you to tolerate them? Being able to numb out, I guess. Sorry? Being able to numb out. Being able, being able to able numb to out, space out, okay. get away from yourself. Who do you think took control of you then? Someone else. That's what happens. Every time you avoid fully connecting to your own self, you allow the ability for another person to connect to you. Yeah. So AJ, are you saying No, I've been to, I've actually been along with other people to a medium. And the thing that the medium is describing is completely not what's happening. No, I understand that. Yeah. I understand a lot of that. times the medium says, oh, your guide is with me, and they're saying this and that and this and that. And I'm going, that's not their guide, that's a really dark spirit who's just stepping in and making out that they're their guide, because they can. And the medium's connecting to that person and telling the story. And this is the problem, is that unless we're sensitive emotionally, to the condition of people, including people we cannot see, we will not know who's overcloaking us at any one point in time. We will not understand or know. The only way we can know is by becoming more sensitive emotionally and actually feeling the difference between our own personality and nature and the personality and nature of the person who's with us. Now, sometimes the person who's with us is our guide, is a, is a benevolent spirit trying to assist us, and all of you have one of them, a benevolent spirit trying to assist you to discover more truth. That's why you're actually here. But all of us also have other malevolent spirits with us that cause us to make different choices and decisions and so forth. Yeah. And, and each of us are different, have different susceptibility to those spirits based on our emotional neediness for different emotions from them. And that is actually the subject of what I would like to discuss the next time we have a discussion with you. Does that sound right? Yeah. I would like to talk to you about that, because I see that as a particular problem here. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I'd love to discuss that with you in a lot more detail at another time.
during this visit. So I think uh, our next planned chat is on the 14th. Yeah, the evening. On the evening of the 14th. I think it's the hall next door. Yeah, the hall next door. Yeah. So um, this one just through here, isn't it? Basically, the other. One. So, so that's what I'd love to discuss with you. Plus an evening one, and then the 26th. The and the 26th of February. February is the last one that we have. So this, there's this one, there's one on the 14th of February, February uh, when we get back from Sweden, and then one on the 26th. Okay, AJ, the other thing that I was going to ask you was um, going back to the experiences and um, the connection that we tried to go or get here in this lifetime or this perceived time span. Yeah. Um, <coughs> When the body does die, we don't quite make it, um, do we, when we reincarnate, do we come back with the experience of the positive experiences from what we endeavour to do and did before and bring it in? Well, I'm going to um, shatter... Carrying on our, pro our program. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to shatter another one of your cherished beliefs. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a church belief. A cherished belief. Oh, yeah, sorry, one that we feel quite... Yeah, I'm sorry about my Australian slang that I thought was short and everything. And here, none of you, aside from my soulmate, has actually ever reincarnated. And in fact, the current teachings of reincarnation that are on the planet are all false. <laughs> <laughs> now I can go into the detail of how they're false, but uh, um, that's pretty confronting for many of you, yes, because many of you come from this investigative new age sort of background where you've been drawn to the teachings of reincarnation and I can certainly explain to you in every single case what's actually happening, if you wish, but it can be a very long discussion as a result of 50 people in a room. But, uh, but I can give you some general overviews of what actually does occur, if, that, if I can. The way God's constructed the universe is that there are dimensional places of existence, as you probably are aware. Most people are aware there are dimensional places of existence. The Earth currently resides in the first dimensional place of existence. Um, and then there are dimensions, the second, the third, and so forth, um, that we have created actually through our progression. People before you have actually created through their own progression in love. Every one of these dimensional places is based on the condition of love. In other words, the lower the place, the worse condition of love it is. Huh? The higher the place, the better condition of love it is. I have described all of this in a presentation that I've done that I'd suggest that you listen to that is called Secrets of the Universe. Overview of Divine Truth, Secrets of the Universe. There are, uh, I think it was dated September 2009. Sorry, September 2009. And there was, there was a whole day of a presentation and then the next day was all the questions that people in the audience had asked. Very similar questions to yourself, actually. So, so there is this dimensional places of existence. Now, to reincarnate the soul, remember I said that the soul splits when it incarnates. Well, for the soul to reincarnate, it has to actually progress all the way through these dimensions and get to the point 
right up here where it amalgamates again. Because it's only a complete soul that can reincarnate. Now, historically on this planet, very few people have ever done it. Right? And I was the first, in fact. My, when I say I, our soul, Mary and I's soul, was the first to accomplish that state. Now, that then brings a huge amount of questions, doesn't it? Why have I had a certain experience that feels like I am a reincarnation? Why I've got spirits telling me about reincarnation? I've got people in the spirit world saying that there is such a thing as reincarnation. And there is an explanation for every single one of those things. And in fact, I have found through discussions with the spirits, it's been fantastic because we can actually talk to the spirits involved in many of the cases and work out why they believe in such a belief and actually help them see that such a belief is not loving nor logical, actually. But, that is, I have, I have an actual YouTube presentation, again, about reincarnation. Four hours of discussion on YouTube. I think it's called, re it's just called reincarnation, I think. The human soul reincarnation. Yeah. I don't know if it's on YouTube yet. I might not be on YouTube yet. There's a sound file on the website. Oh, the sound files of that talk are available. MP3 files are available on the Divine Truth website, www.divinetruth.com, under seminars. And you'll probably find it in 2008, around that time frame. Uh, or 2009. Sorry? There's one in East and one in Yeah, there's actually two presentations on reincarnation. In those present, and I've actually written a document which you can also download, it's a hundred pages to read, about reincarnation and all of the different investigations you can do to see whether reincarnation is actually true or not. So my suggestion is to have a look at those things, rather than me going into a long-winded discussion right now as to, you know, how that works. However, I want to say to everyone present, I understand that that uh, damages or, or, you know, severely impacts, shall we say, some long-held, cherished belief systems. However, this is what I'm getting at right back at the start of this discussion with you. We need to be humble enough to actually accept the truth and not our believed or perceived truth. And there is a way to prove the truth to you if you're willing to completely be open to investigation. Now what often happens is the way that we discovered reincarnation as an idea or concept is through the process of investigation. And then what happens is it seems to be very much what happens in our own life or we see it or observe it in the lives of others. And then we hold on to that belief as true without looking at what the alternate explanations might be for such events occurring. And what I put to you is that mankind is very selective when it comes to belief systems. We are not open in our investigations. We actually feel the belief system and conceive it to be possibly true Often we have a spirit with us saying, yeah, it's true, yeah, it's true, believe it, believe it, when that spirit has no idea whether it's true or not. And, and so we are heavily influenced by our own emotions and the emotions of others, whether we can see them or not see them, as to whether something is true. My suggestion is, instead of doing that, be far more open to more thorough investigation than just closing your mind once you get a certain belief that you find quite comforting 
to your own soul. Generally, when we are feeling a feeling of comfort about a belief, it's an indication that we also have fear associated with why we accept that belief. And when we address those fears, we are often open to completely different beliefs, which we can investigate more thoroughly. So, probably a good time to actually finish it. We've gone on probably an hour longer than I expected. But what, what I would recommend to you is this. Investigate very thoroughly every belief. Do not put it in the, I firmly believe this is true, column of your life until you have experienced it and investigated every aspect of the experience. Does that make sense to you? That would make total logical sense to do that, surely. But also, it would be the most thorough and thing to do with regard to our belief systems. The reason why I recommend that is this. The problem with belief systems on Earth is many belief systems result in a lot of pain for a lot of people when they are false. Pain is the, is the result of false belief, false emotional positions that we hold on to for a lot of our lives. We don't need to have so much pain, but to not have so much pain, we need to stop accepting beliefs unless we have personally experienced them and investigated them properly. Yeah? The big problem that many of us have had all of our lives, you think about it, even in our childhoods, we were often forced into a belief that was told to us as true, which later on we came to feel wasn't. And the process of forcing a belief has caused a lot of the trauma and pain in our own life. So my suggestion is, only accept belief systems that are actually proven through a process of investigation where you are thorough, both emotionally and with connecting with God in the way that I've mentioned, so that you can actually come to see whether they are true or not. Do not think that just because you feel it to be true that it is. Because your feelings can be manipulated by other people, particularly other people you cannot see. So it's very important for you to be much more thorough in your investigation of truth. And that's what I would like to leave you with, to actually have the desire to be thorough in your investigation of truth. Does that make sense? So hopefully uh, when you do that, you'll, uh, you'll enjoy the process of discovery, uh, but also once the truth does actually enter you through this method of receiving love from God and comparing that with what happens with truth, um, you will actually know what the truth is through your personal experience and you will not need a mediator or anyone else to tell you what it is. Now, it's handy sometimes when somebody tells you what it is, so I'm not saying don't listen to them, but I am saying that it has to eventually be a personal experience before you will firmly believe something to be true inside of yourself. And that's what I would like to leave you with. Our next discussion will probably be more about spirit entities and their effect on our lives. And I'm thinking our last discussion might be a lot about sexuality, actually, and uh, how that influences spirituality. Because I feel many of you are involved in pseudo-spirituality in the guise of sexual expression.
and so I'd like to discuss that with you as well. And that's the general flow, depending on yourselves and what you would like to discuss in the future if you want to come. So, Mary, what was it? Just wondered if you wanted to mention about the hard drive copy service. Oh, yes. Um, every single talk that I've given, except for about 10 of them, I think, at this stage, is on a hard disk drive that can be copied that I have left with Michael Carney, if you put up your hand, Michael. What's your email address, Michael? Do you um, mind giving it? Yeah, Oyster Features, O-I-S-T-E-R. <coughs> so, O-Y-S-T-E-R Features. Yeah. Michael was very hopeful to get an Oyster dot at some point. Yeah, it's, like, it's not the curator. Which is what it's about. It's not about Oyster. No, 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 I'm going to read the Gmail.com. I don't know if you know, but Oyster is a brand of boat, yes. and, uh, and they make very beautiful boats. <laughs> so that's his rest. Now, there is this service that we'd like to offer you, that if you would like a copy of all the talks that have ever been done, all you would need to do is buy a hard disk drive, one of the USB hard disk drives that are, that are, that are bus powered, a two and a half inch half hard disk drive. It has to be above 320 megabytes in capacity, uh, gigabytes, sorry, in capacity. And it, it contains this, this drive, all of the PDFs that we've got on our website, all, all of the MP3 sound files that are on our website, and most of the YouTube uploads that are on the YouTube site of all the talks I've given from 2008 onwards. It's a lot of information. There's, a, there's, there's over 600 hours of video, at least, on that disk. So all you need to do is, um, is buy that disk, send it to Mike, be patient with Mike, because if everyone gets, if he gets 100 disks or something, then it's going to be, take a while. It takes around five hours to copy the disk. Right? So it takes a bit of time. For, it's just a matter of setting it up on a computer and it copies. Um, if you do it with a return address envelope so that he can send it back to you, then, then you will get a free copy of all of the things that have ever been produced that you could ever download from the internet or on YouTube. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's a service that Mike has agreed to be a part of for you. He's doing that voluntarily. And feel free to also donate to him if you wish to help him out with that process. Obviously, it's going to take his time, and, uh, and time is a precious resource. But uh, we would like to, we wanted to offer that to you so that you have the opportunity of having, like, at the moment, these talks are on, like, I think there's about 400 DVDs or something, isn't there? Uh, um, would there be 400? Because there's two per pack. Well, the thing is about 200. 200. Yeah. And that's not all the talks, because there's 32 talks missing in that DVD pack. So to do it in DVDs, you would need to get 200 DVDs. Right? So it's a huge amount of information um, that can all fit on one drive. So, you know, again, you'll need a, well, I, I would suggest a 500 um, gigabyte drive, which is two and a half inches in size. And USB powered, in other words, it's powered through the USB cable, it doesn't have its own power. And they're only small drives, aren't they? Most of you would probably have seen them or bought them. They, here, what do they cost? 
I don't know. I just bought two terabytes for about sixty quid. So that's a yeah, these things are only cost probably 30 quid or even less. Yeah. Oh, like in Australia, they cost 80 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're just called external hard drives, so yeah. Yeah, external hard drives. What's the terabytes? Um, separate power source, though? My yeah. one is, yeah. I bought them recently. It was about 660 for a 640 gig. 640? And that was 60 pounds. You can get them for about 30. Yeah. yeah. You should be able to buy them in the 30 to 60 pound range. Yeah. 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 Well, is your donation box at the back? Um, yes, there is. I've got no idea where it is. It's not very sophisticated. No. There is a box at the back. Nothing the we do is very sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the qualities I was going to present to you. Is that, you know how we all like polish and. Well, it's totally the opposite with me, trust me. <laughs> Definitely not polished. Uh, oh, I better leave that there. So is it worth putting the Wizard Shack sites up there? Oh, yes, on YouTube, if you do have an internet connection that is quick and has a good download limit on it. Um, I know your internet connections are far better than ours in Australia, so, um, in general. So, um, you can go to a site on YouTube, if you just type in, I think it's just... Wizard uh, Shack, uh, like that, and do a search, you'll find a lot of the files, or you could call it Divine Truth Channel. And, so, Divine Truth Channel. And that's where you find the secrets of the universe talk reference. You'll find the secrets of the universe talk and around about uh, 140 or 50 other talks there. Of the 320 gig material, are there any a range of I believe you're grouping it into topics, aren't you? Are there any that are sensible to look at first? Yes, there are. Good question. Good question. I would look at. A few in an order first. In fact, there are probably seven that I would recommend first. The very first ones I'd recommend you to watch because it gives you a big overview of the universe and how the universe operates and works and the basic principles of the universe. That's called Overview of Divine Truth, Secrets of the Universe. There's two parts to it. There's a Secrets of the Universe and then there's a Secrets of the Universe question and answer. So I'd look at that first. The next thing I would look at would be longing or praying for divine love. The third thing I would look at is longing or praying for divine truth. The fourth thing I would look at is humility. And those, they're all relationship with God series of talks. And the fifth one I would probably look at is the human soul, an introduction to the human soul. Um, so it makes sense to go through the introductory ones first. If you're interested in God's laws, my suggestion is to go to, there's one called Introduction to God's Laws, and then you'll see other God's Laws listed in the, in the, in the disc. So my suggestion would go first to the Introduction and then to the rest. Um, yeah, so that's the general principle. And your website is www.divinetruth, D-I-V-I-N-E-T-R-U-T-H, divinetruth.com. And all of the MP3 downloads are under Seminars. And there's YouTube links there as well that you can right click on and jump to. Yep. And everything we do is by, um, by voluntary effort. So I myself have done our websites, that's why they're not as good as they could be. And, and, and other people have done different things. Uh, we have a friend of ours voluntarily who makes the DVDs and everything's done by voluntary effort. And um, 
and by donation. So we don't actually charge for anything that we do, um, but, but donations are appreciated and we'd like to thank you for the donations that you've given today as well. Obviously there's a, you know, venues to pay for and all those kind of things which are paid for by donation and if we don't have enough money we just don't do it. <laughs> That's how, how we work. And there are a lot of people involved in providing you those things. Joy, who's been standing up here, is from Australia and who's been operating the camera. Um, but Joy is a leader of a team called the Events Team and she handles a lot of our events for us. And she does that voluntarily. Um, she also uh, handles a lot of the DVD uh, production. So once the DVD is produced by a person who volunteers to put it all together, Joy then sends it off, gets lots and lots of copies done, which we pay for, and, uh, and, and Joy then has a team of people who sort them all out and get them ready for distribution. Now, we didn't bring any DVDs with us because it's obviously too huge to do so, and that's why we brought these discs with us to give you that option of having a copy of all of the DVDs on one disc. To thank the people in Sweden who enabled us to get here. Oh yes, yes. Um, the only reason why we got here was because the people in Sweden donated our fare to get here. So you have people in Sweden to thank okay. for um, us being here with you. Does that make sense? Um, so um, we would like to thank them for that at least, even if. Exactly the same way you're meeting us now, for many of you, and uh, they uh, have only become involved through, you know, investigating themselves and so forth. So they are just the same as yourself. They don't have any special skills or special funding or anything like that. Everything's been voluntary in the way it's provided to, and that's how we generally work. These, this particular discussion will shortly be available on the internet for you to download as a sound recording. So if you want to hear it again, um, you can listen to it again. And because we've got the two cameras, uh, in about eight or ten weeks' time, it will probably be available as a YouTube download. So you might see your pretty face um, <laughs> on a YouTube download at some point. <laughs> Does that make sense? Um, and that's how we run every single event. Because obviously the questions you ask, lots of other people have either asked or wanted to ask, and so we provide the information to everybody who wants to hear it um, with no restriction. Yep. We actually don't even edit it much, it's just warts and all, which, which is what I'm trying to promote with you, is it not? So, so how could I go there and polish it all up? <laughs> so it's all warts and all, and uh, what happens, happens, so in everything that happened today, um, would be a part of that recorded event. Thanks for your time today. I realise your time is precious. And yes, Joy just reminded me to thank you for the beautiful meal that all of you were involved in putting on for our break. That was really good. And uh, look forward to seeing each other perhaps in uh, about just over a fortnight's time. Uh, the 14th, Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day yeah. which is the day Mary and I actually first met. Oh. <laughs>